I want to welcome everyone to episode number 13 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And help us look back at all these shows, the man who went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Arizzi. John, how you doing? Trying to remember back 50 years. That's a hard thing to do, Tim. Let's take it easy. Let's take baby steps then. Uh, Let's go back a couple of weeks for you. You were in Las Vegas, and you attended the Cauliflower Alley Convention. For people who don't know, please explain what the Cauliflower Alley is. Uh, The Cauliflower Alley Foundation, the CAC, it is an organization that was organized in 1965 by an actor-slash-wrestler named Mike Mazurki. They used to get together, he and some others, uh, at the Elks Club in Hollywood, and they would basically raise money or personally donating money to wrestlers that have, were down and out, wrestlers who needed financial assistance. It kept getting larger and larger, and then they finally organized, and Mike was the first president. Other presidents were Luthez, Nick Bockwinkle. There's been a long lineage. And now B. Brian Blair is the president of the foundation. So what the Cauliflower Alley does each and every year, they do a reunion in Vegas and they bring in all of these legends and all people from the inside of the wrestling community and fans are welcome to go too. And it is uh, all designed to raise money for the foundation. And each and every year they give awards out. For example, uh, the Mike Mazurki Award annually. Uh, they do the, uh, the Men's Wrestler Award, the Female Wrestler Award, the Tag Team Award, they do Courage Awards, they do the Lucha Library Award, and they just honor those in the industry, whether you're from the past and in some cases the present. Like today, uh, well, actually, uh, this past convention, I'm sorry, I'm just a little, uh, you know, tired from watching the Mets lose against Atlanta. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so this year uh, I emceed for the second year in the rows, master cer- ceremonies along with uh, this year Medusa and Jimmy Hart. Jimmy was a special guest emcee because we honored a lot of the legends from Memphis including Jerry the King Lawler, Rock and Roll Express, Teeny Jarrett, who was uh, in the office in the early days of Memphis. And of course, she's part of the Jarrett family. So Jeff Jarrett was there and Jerry Jarrett was there. Conan was there this year, who was uh, inducted by uh, Rey Mysterio, which was kind of cool. But it was a lot of fun. A lot of money was raised. And it is an organization that uh, certainly needs everybody's financial assistance. Memberships are 25 bucks a year. If you want to be a lifetime member, it's 300. Uh, so go to the CAC website, just look for them, Cauliflower Alley Club, and then you'll be able to uh, participate. And each year in Vegas, it's a, it's a good day. It's a good time. It's three days of dealer tables and autograph sessions and panels, and then the two banquets that take place. Uh, the first night is the what they call the bologna blowout, where it's like a bologna, you know cold cut sandwiches, and and then the the more formal event is the Wednesday night where the big awards are presented. Uh, so. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I was happy and honored to be able to host it for the second year in a row. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'll be asked back next year with Medusa because they liked uh, our synergy with each other. It was a lot of fun. Can you see any of this on YouTube or anything? Uh, they do film it. Uh, so I don't know uh, where those videos are. There are there There is uh, audio of some of the speeches up on YouTube. Conan's, for example, is up there. 
and he uh, just paid homage to uh, uh, the people that preceded him in the Lucha Libre world. And Conan is not doing so well right now. He's uh, going to be undergoing dialysis. He needs a kidney transplant. So um, he looked pretty thin. I've never seen him, you know, look that frail. So it really kind of concerned me. He's such a great, uh, a great legend in this business, a good friend. And uh, uh, that was kind of sad for me to see. But other than that, Jerry the King was great. Great stories. Jimmy Hart, Rock and Roll Express, uh, so many others. Uh, Kevin Sullivan was also inducted this year. And Jacqueline got the Women's uh, Legends Award. And she was, a you know, several time a world champion for WWE and the WWE was there. Uh, they had a couple of tables uh, and also JBL was there as well. And he was uh, given the uh, biggest honor of the year, which was the Mike Mazurki award. Uh, last year, Medusa had gotten that. So she presented that to JBL. Uh, so it was fun. It was a good time. It's such a great organization. And it's been uh, like one of those grassroots organizations for years. It just didn't start recently. It started, like I said, I think it was in the fifties, 1965. So it's great. I definitely would like to go with you next year. If I can get the time off, I would definitely like to join you. And if you're not a member, check them out. Check the website out. What's the website again, John? Uh, if you want to go to the website, it's cauliflowerallyclub.org. $25 for a year, 300 lifetime membership. These are good people. They, they take care of the wrestlers that can't take care of themselves, and they do a lot for the community. So please take care of them. And speaking of which, taking care of people, we want to thank all our Patreons for helping us out. You know, we're one of the only shows that does wrestling history from the New York territories. And we want to thank our Patreons for helping, you know, keep the lights on and keep these podcasts going. But we wouldn't do it without your help. It's patreon.com slash John Arizzi. Um, John, you always add stuff to the Patreon. I'm always excited to hear what you're adding each week. This week, what are you adding to the Patreon? Uh, basically, what we did is uh, we're, we're still putting up uh, on a weekly basis all those vintage uh, WWF uh, TV clips, uh, promo announcements. We have added a new feature for the other podcast I do, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight, which goes back 30 years. And we have added a new video element to that. So we have uh, the show not only uh, on audio now, but you get it on video. Patrons always get it several days in advance. There are photo sets. There are uh, vintage wrestling magazines that go out to people. Uh, your entree is five bucks a month that gets you in the door. Then there are other levels where you get a lot more benefits. But yeah, we want to thank all the patrons out there. So uh, patreon.com slash John Arezzi. As Tim says, it really helps us out and keep the lights on, so to speak. Absolutely. Let's get into today's show. October 16th, 1972. Attendance at Madison Square Garden is 15,423. So using 22,000 as a sellout, we're looking at about 6,577 empty seats. And this is important because... This is not their first show, nor they had a show on September 2nd, 1972, which drew 21,819. That was the return of Bruno. Then, before the end of the month, September 30th, they did a Shea show, 22,508. John and I did a show on that, so you can go listen to that on the Patreon if you want. And now they're doing October 16th at Madison Square Garden. We're looking at only 15,423. So, John, I don't think the Shea show helped attendance here, did it? No, I think, uh, you know, to your point, there were three shows that were really close together. September 2nd, obviously, at the Garden, then September 30th, uh, uh, the debacle at Shea Stadium, uh, Bruno versus Pedro Morales. And then you come back just a couple of weeks later with another Garden show. Uh, I mean, it's kind of stretching the dollar a little bit too much to people who uh, go to these shows. But I think there was a little bit of a backlash as well in regard to the result of the Shea Stadium show. And if you look at this show top to bottom, this show that we'll be covering, 
it wasn't really anything that was special uh, that would warrant uh, a Madison Square Garden house show. It was just kind of blasé. Speaking of money being stretched, how did you afford three shows in roughly a month period? My dad. <laughs> so you got a loan. Well, no, I mean, he, uh, you know, at that time, um, uh, you know, you work as a kid, you know, as a paper boy when I was a kid. And that I think at that time I might have been working at a supermarket. But, you know, the money is tight. Uh, and But my dad, uh, you know, he'd give me 20 bucks. And all right, here you go. Here's your train fare. Here's your ticket. Da 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 da. And my dad worked weekends. You know, he also worked overnight shifts uh, at a trucking company. And so uh, Sundays he would get home very late. Sometimes you know five in the morning. So I would kind of stay up because I was so anxious. Oh, where is he going to be? Or maybe he'd stay by my grandma if he was too tired. But I'd always uh, hear that car. Uh, his car, like I could tell when he drove up to the uh, to the house and then he revved the motor and shut it off. That's what he used to do. And I was like, ah, my pop is home and I'll be able to go to wrestling again. Uh, you know, so that was uh, just the way it was back then. You know, we didn't uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of money. Uh, he was a hardworking guy. And yeah, I was always grateful because uh, if it wasn't for him allowing me and giving me the, the money to buy these tickets and go to the show, I mean, my streak might not have happened for those five consecutive years. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, speaking of, we, we got your tickets. You probably got them from the same place, correct? Uh, yeah, I mean, that would typically be uh, Ticketron, you know, or sometimes we'd wait in line the night of the show uh, to uh, get tickets for the next event. And, you know, you'd get your seventh row ringside to 10th row ringside. And it wasn't until I learned uh, in 1974 that there was that little corrupt ticket seller at the garden box office window number seven, Bill Baker, uh, day of the show, seven bucks, $3 tip, first or second row. So nice. I nice. learned late. Nice. I love this. I love this uh, inside information. So we're only two weeks between shows. How would they do the buildup for this garden show? You know, obviously TV is taped in advance. So even I guess uh, I guess they even taped the promos for this even before the showdown at Shea, uh, where they knew what they were going to do as the follow up to put uh, Bruno and Pedro together against Tanaka and Fuji for this revenge match. So uh, that was cut in advance, and they just edited them into the show, and there you go. You promote it for two weeks, and maybe that was not even enough buildup for those who didn't go to Shea. And, you know, who knows? There's a lot of factors involved, and the way they promoted back then is certainly way different than it is today. But uh, the attendance showed it. I mean, when you drop 6,000 people, that's significant. That's, uh, that's about 20, more than 25% of your gate. Yeah, and then the Shea Stadium show sure wasn't a sellout, not even close to a sellout. I'm wondering no. what they expected out of Shea, how many more they expected, because what we looked at the, with, the, with the people who went to Shea, they didn't even beat the attendance, really. It was very close to the September 2nd attendance. So you're not talking a lot more, but you're paying more for the venue. Yeah, uh, that's a thing. But the advance was there and, you know, it was a very small walk up. And that's what they probably counted on because the weather was horrendous that day. I mean, it was it was rainy and cold and drizzling. And you wake up and you're like thinking of going to the Shea Stadium show. But the weather is so horrible that you don't trek out there. I mean, that probably had to be the case while the, while, you know, while the attendance was only 22 plus. So, I mean, there were a lot of factors. You know, obviously the match had interest, but it was only built up for a few weeks too if you take a look at it it wasn't like it had a three-month buildup or anything like that to really hype it up it was done really haphazardly and really quickly and that is another reason why uh you know you didn't fill up shea stadium there's a number of factors there so it was handled wrong from the concept to the execution 
of that show. And then the um, the backlash took place at Madison Square Garden on October the 16th, uh, when uh, only 15,000 plus showed up uh, at the Mecca to see this uh, very sub-average show. Well, let's start with that show. Match number one, the Black Demon defeated Joe Turco in six minutes. Yeah, typical opening match with the Black Demon and Turco, uh, uh, the Black Demon, a.k.a. Tony Nero. Uh, this was going to be his last appearance at Madison Square Garden uh, as the Black Demon. Uh, he did go out with a win over uh, my ex-tag team partner. Of course, that was a few years in advance, I mean, but this is 1972. Uh, six years later, I'd have the opportunity to um, uh, have... Have a match, and Joe Turco was my tag team partner, the Continental Nobleman, and so that was kind of cool. But uh, poor, uh, poor Joe lost that night. Six minutes, not that good, Tim. Not that good. Match number two: Little Beaver and Little Louie defeated Frenchie Lamont and Sunny Boy Hayes. Two out of three falls, two to one. Eighteen minutes, twenty seconds. The midget matches were always kind of more choreographed for that time than any of the other matches on the card because they did the same routine. They chase each other. The, you know, someone would bite the other guy on the butt. The referee would get involved. They'd roll around. They do a lot of comedy. Uh, and then in this two out of three fall match, um, you know, it was just typical midget stuff. Just talking about some of the participants in it, little beaver, uh, his last in-ring appearance uh, for his career was at WrestleMania three. And he was 52 years old at mm. the time he teamed with hillbilly Jim and, uh, and the Haiti kid, actually. Uh, Frenchie Lamont, uh, who was also in this match, he was trained by Lord Littlebrook. He debuted in 1963. And Lord Littlebrook, really interesting about him is that he was kind of the fabulous moolah of uh, the little people. He trained most of the guys, uh, most of the midget wrestlers uh, in that era. He trained them right till the time that uh, he retired. I mean, he was in it for many, many years. I had some interaction with him in 1992 because he had trained a uh, midget wrestler by the name of the Karate Kid. And the Karate Kid was involved in the WWF sex scandals. The uh, story went, and I had both of these guys on my uh, Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show in March of uh, 1992, the day before Donahue. Uh, they came on to tell their story. And then um, it was kind of a scenario where it was alleged that Karate Kid was, uh, Chris Dubey was his name, that he was being uh, made uncomfortable by Pat Patterson. And Lord Littlebrook stepped in and defended him. And then there was this back and forth or whatever. But uh, Pat could have been just teasing him, but... Chris, uh, uh, Karate Kid took it to, took it wrong, or who knows what happened. No one was there. They only know the story. And ironically, the midget wrestlers were used just one more time, and then they were never used again in the uh, WWF. I had brought that fact up on the Donahue show and spoke about that. So that was kind of a bizarre moment for me on the Donahue show because it was such a bizarre scenario. And Phil Donahue and the audience just laughed out loud. And I was sorry I brought it up but at the time. I felt I had to bring it up because of everything else that was swirling around. And also, ironically, was that uh, right after that Donahue show, I had gotten a call from CBS News. Actually, no, it was like before, right before the Donahue show. And and CBS did it uh, with Dan Rather did a uh, a segment called Eye on America, where they talked about the scandals. And the reporter for CBS actually flew out to Missouri uh, to do a uh, interview with Lord Littlebrook and Karate Kid, which aired 
on the CBS Evening News with Dan Rather back at that time. I didn't know that after the whole scandal, there were no more little people at the garden. They only used him one more time, and that was it. It was over. Wow. And we were talking about Little Beaver being 52. I remember this match at WrestleMania. He got slammed by King Kong Bundy at 52. Yes. yes uh, he had a long career, and he was probably, uh, for the time, uh, probably the, the premier uh, midget wrestler. He was the most over with the fans uh, back then because he had that uh, American Indian gimmick that he used and and he was kind of beloved and he had, you know, was a good worker and all that. Very over, like I said, with the fans. And uh, Frenchie Lamont was another one of those mainstays as Lord Littlebrook was as well back then. Those were kind of the three top guys, the uh, three top midget wrestlers of the era. And they were so athletic. No one talked about how athletic they were. How long did it go? Let's check again. It went 18 minutes. 18 minutes, 20 seconds of pure action. Yeah, there really are no rest holds or, you know, boring uh, spots. They just kept running around, doing their thing, the flips, the, you know, the flying arm drags. Uh, It it was not boring. The midget matches were never boring. They were entertaining. And that's what they were put on the card to be, is to lighten up the mood, to make people laugh, and to entertain the fans there. And they always did a good job doing that. And one of the only matches in this card that does that. Let's go on to match number three. Buddy Wolf defeated Black Jack Slade in seven minutes, three seconds. Yeah, this was kind of a throwaway Buddy Wolf uh, who uh, had some uh, historic matches at Madison Square Garden. I mean, he was the guy that uh, fought Andre the Giant in Andre's first match. Uh, he was also the guy that fought Mil Moscaris in Moscaris's first match. They'd bring him in. Uh, he fought Vern Gagne there. So he had some really big matches there. Uh, I was always a little jealous of Buddy Wolf, uh, who started out as Lee Wolf, because he was married to Vivian Vachon. And Vivian Vachon was the sister uh, of uh, Butcher and Mad Dog Vachon, the aunt of uh, Luna Vachon, because she was one of the most attractive female wrestlers ever. This night, I remember her sitting at ringside, and I uh, took a photo of her, and I was just so happy to see her, you know, in person. But she never had the chance to wrestle at Madison Square Garden, ironically. But Buddy Wolf also, one other thing that he did, he was part of a big Muhammad Ali angle at the time when they were promoting in 1976 that Ali Inoki match. And I believe this took place in Minnesota, which was the home base uh, for Buddy Wolf. And they they did an angle with Ali and and Wolf uh, actually wrestled Ali, I believe, on uh, for wild, Wide World of Sports or something. So Buddy Wolf really had some really uh, historic matches throughout his uh, career. And he was always a very believable heel. He was He played the heel really, really well. Now, let's go out to the next match. Well, let's talk about Blackjack Slade first. Oh, let's talk about Blackjack Slade. I don't even know who yeah, Blackjack Slade is. Yeah, because I know he was, you know, I don't know, even know why you forgot Blackjack Slade. I thought he was one of your all-time favorite wrestlers. He's so. on the, he's on the my Mount Rushmore for sure. He is, right? Yeah. He debuted in 1964, retired in 1982. You know, known more of a journeyman than anything else, and I don't even know how many times he wrestled at the Garden. He was very forgettable, but uh, he also wrestles as Jack Slate, and he did have a uh, a match against the NWA champion uh, Jack Briscoe and that match uh, from Australia can be seen on YouTube. Now we're only talking we're three matches in. It's a half Mm -hmm. an hour into the show and here we go. Let's bring the main event out. Uh, First of all let me ask right (laughs) off off the bat John is this normal for having a main event only half hour into the show? 
Not really. No. I mean, they put the main event on sometimes in the middle of the card or towards the end of the card or in the second half of the card. But this was really early. And I don't know what the reasoning was. I don't know if guys had a flight to catch, so they had to get on early. It could have been a number of reasons. Uh, but it was really surprising to see this match, the main event, on so early on in the show. Absolutely. Match number four in the show, the WWWF heavyweight champion Pedro Morales and Bruno San Martino defeated the WWWF tag team champions Professor Tanaka and Mr. Fuji in a two out of three falls match to zip with the secondary fall. The challengers won by disqualification. This match went 17 minutes, 34 seconds. Uh, very disappointing because the DQ, because it was a title match and uh, everyone would have loved to see Bruno San Martino and Pedro Morales win the tag team titles. Uh, that didn't happen. And so we just kind of a, a finish that wasn't pleasing, even though uh, uh, Morales and San Martino got their revenge on Tanaka and Fuji. But it's still when you look at it, it, it was a disappointment uh, just because of the DQ, which prohibited uh, the challengers from being able to win the championship. And obviously, you know, with only 16 days in between the Shea show, it was way too soon. Bruno and Pedro teaming together against uh, these hated heels from Japan. It was really the lowest attended Madison Square Garden show in almost two years for a match that really should have easily been a sellout if it was uh, promoted uh, longer. Uh, with maybe a better result from uh, Shea Stadium. Who the heck knows? It was not one of my favorite uh, uh, main events at the Garden that I'd seen over the years. Okay, so that's that's our main event. That's at match number four. Let's go to match number five. The spoiler fought Sonny King to a 20-minute draw. A very big snoozer. That was one that was putting people to sleep. And when people got bored at the Garden, they'd start whistling, you know? So, uh, yeah, you know, they'd put their fingers in their mouth, or if you knew how to whistle without your fingers in your mouth and make that loud whistle sound. I mean, but that's what would happen when people would get... <laughs> Bored. It's it wasn't like in today's uh, world uh, where people actually chant boring. People would find a different way to make people know, make the wrestlers know, and uh, that they were kind of bored and fed up with what was going on. And I remember uh, that there was a lot of whistling going on in that match from the crowd. Uh, spoiler, aka Don Jardine. He uh, is uh, is written about in Playboy Gary Hart's uh, hard to find book, My Life in Wrestling, and has some really good stories about uh, Jardine. And was portrayed in that book as a legitimate badass and uh, that entire book actually can be heard on youtube and by the way that playboy gary hart book one of the best books in professional wrestling i would say oh, really, really really great never, i haven't read it is it really that good it's very good and it's hard to find too so uh, maybe you should have richie richie i think has a copy of it so hit him up for oh go to youtube copy. right uh, listen to the book on youtube well, there you go absolutely let's go to match number six ray stevens defeated el olympico seven minutes 45 seconds yeah i mean this was kind of exciting to see ray stevens and ray stevens was getting Getting that push because he was going to have the title match against Pedro Morales uh, upcoming. I always uh, really loved watching Ray Stevens. He was one of the most believable heels out there and uh defeating el olympico uh, he might have it might have been better off if he had even a bigger uh named opponent rather than an el olympico who was a perennial uh enhancement guy but it was a quick and easy match for stevens he showed off his brawling style he did some some really spectacular moves and of course his finisher was always uh, dropping the knee on somebody's throat from the top rope he was legendary for that so uh, getting to see Ray Stevens and such a tough guy that he was 
it was a um, it, it was a pleasure to see that. Ironically, or not ironically, but historically, his first Madison Square Garden appearance was way back on March 9th, 1959, when he teamed with the professor Roy Shire, who later became the main promoter in San Francisco for many, many years. That was his territory. Uh, so they had actually teamed up with the Garden in 1959, and they went to a 30-minute draw at that time against Guy and Joe Brunetti. Uh, Stevens was born Carl Raymond Stevens, and uh, he died in uh, 1996, like a lot of wrestlers do at a very young age. He was only 60 years old, but uh, he was also better known as uh, as the Crippler before Chris Benoit. And uh, Ray also had another nickname, the Blonde Bomber, one of the greatest workers of all time one of the best tag teams ever because he had uh, a long run with Pat Patterson out there on the West Coast and also teamed for a while with Nick Bockwinkle. And he was managed by Bobby the Brain Heenan and uh, just a legend, a real true legend, Ray Stevens was. He was the guy who turned Snooka from a heel to a baby face, if you remember that back in the, I think it was the late I- 70s, early 80s. I was probably out of wrestling at the time, so that is very vague for me. I remember that he came in, and it was uh, it was the whole Crippler thing. Well, I know it, it must. Hmm. Yes, it was it probably mid '80s. It was probably mid '80s. It was before I mean, WrestleMania. I, 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 it was before yeah, the I whole took, thing. Yeah, so it was definitely. Yeah, I took I took a sabbatical really from uh, you know the early '80s. Once '80 was over, I, you know I was I was doing other things. I had work working for the Mets and managing Patty Loveless. I was on the road with bands, so I wasn't even watching wrestling again in that time period, which was uh, you know a good time period. But I was out of it, and I didn't really start watching again until uh, uh, the Rock and Wrestling Connection, the Cindy Lauper, Captain Lou Albano. Wendy Richter stuff on MTV and that's what drew me back in because I was in the music business and when I saw that stuff I was like I got hooked all over again. This is a little before, just a little before that when they were turning yeah. uh, Snooker. Probably after- 83 maybe, maybe probably. 83 early 84 when Snooker was turning babyface yeah. at the time. Yeah. Let's go to match number 7. The women are back. Tony Rose and Donna Crisnello defeated Vicky Williams and Joyce Gable 6 minutes Five seconds. This is a really cool thing. First is the first women's tag team at Madison Square Garden. But also, John, it's not the women's tag team championship for the WWF. It's the NWA women's tag team championship that there was on the line at this night. Even though uh, McMahon had uh, Vince Senior had separated from the NWA to start his own title, there were still some uh, tag. Uh, there's still some championship belts out there. Ironically, though, I mean, I don't really remember a lot about. Um, the NWA women's tag team title, uh, you know, traveling around. There was never really a lot of notoriety for the women's tag team championship. Uh, so uh, that was really odd to see on this show uh, where uh, Rose and Christian Ello uh, defeated Williams and Joyce Grable. But it was an exciting match. I mean, the women also, they, they just tore the house up because you don't get the opportunity, especially for the women, to uh, perform at the Garden. And they were always on. They were always like, on top of their game. And of course, you know, there weren't hundreds of women. There were dozens. So they all worked against each other pretty often. So their spots were down and it was a good it was a good match. To tell you a little bit about the women in this match, Tony Rose, as most of them were, uh, trained by Fabulous Moolah in 1965. She also held that version of the NWA's uh, Tag Team Championship twice with Moolah. Donna Christianello, she was born Mary Alfonsi. She was trained by Moolah in 63. And along with Moolah, helped train Sherry Martell, which is an interesting side note. Uh, she also lived with Mula on and off for 40 years. Hmm. I wonder if they were an item. Mm. Uh, 
Interesting stuff. Vicky Williams, also trained by Moolah, debuted in 1970, retired in 1980. She was a little firecracker, uh, Vicky Williams, and she had the distinction of being the first woman ever to wrestle at Madison Square Garden on September 1st, 1972, against said fabulous Moolah. And finally, Joyce Grable, she was born Betty Wade, uh, also trained by Moolah. Joyce was a longtime tag team partner of Wendy Richter, so she had her run. And it was kind of cool because I saw her at the Cauliflower Alley Club, and uh, I told her I had films of her, and Joyce was there to get the Courage Award. She'd gone through some hard times, but uh, it was great to see her and meet her uh, because I remember her as a as a just a little blonde spitfire back in the days that she was wrestling. I have so many great photographs of her that I shot. It was an honor to meet her, and uh, she's doing okay. Uh, obviously, older, you know, a little bit heavier, uh, but still had that wonderful Southern personality and. People just gave her a standing ovation when she was uh, inducted into the CAC or given that award at the event last week in Vegas. That's so cool. Let's go to last match. Last match of the night, Chief Jay Strongbow defeated Chuck O'Connor in three minutes, 39 seconds. What, what's with this? Uh, it may have been getting close to curfew at 11 o'clock, you know, because obviously with a bunch of tag team, two out of three fall matches, you had the midgets, you had the girls. So you, you had three tag team matches on the main event. So uh, three minutes, 39 seconds. Let's get out, in and out really fast. It was surprising to me. Uh, because of uh, Chuck O'Connor. I thought he was going to be getting a little bit a bigger push. And Strongbow, of course, uh, who won. Uh, it was just kind of a short match. Not too much in my memory about it. Of course, I remember Chuck O'Connor, uh, a.k.a. Big John Studd, a.k.a. John Minton. Uh, he started out uh, actually working in the Mike LaBelle promotion in Los Angeles as the Mighty Minton before coming to the WWF. And, of course, trained by one Walter Killer Kowalski, a legend himself. I mean, his his legacy it just kept growing and growing and growing. And then the feud with Andre. And, uh, you know, and he also died young. Uh, my goodness. But... Um, Always one of my favorites, John Studd. But in the early days, I was hoping that there would be an upset and he'd beat Strongbow because I just felt he had a lot of charisma and he deserved a bigger push. I'm almost afraid to ask this, but John, how would you rate the card? Uh, thumbs down for sure. Thumbs down. Not a great card. Um, I, I think it's very disappointing when you talk about like the, the buildup, Bruno coming back. Looks great. Fantastic. Can't wait for Bruno to be back. He did so well on September 2nd. And then you had that Shea show that a lot of people attended, but they walked out disappointed. Now you got the October 16th show. Again, another show that's... So you're running two disappointing shows in a row. Uh, hopefully they can come back next month because two disappointing shows is not good for them. Yeah, no, not at all. And, you know, I think for me personally, and, you know, other people may have rated the show higher, but it was just kind of a letdown from Shea Stadium. You were still a, a hardcore fan like me who also found out that, you know, wrestling was totally predetermined. Uh, it was just kind of a, a downer for me. And that's why, for me, the thumbs down, it was kind of spillover from Shea, uh, spillover and disappointment from uh, not a definitive title change in that tag match with Morales and Bruno teaming up. Uh, so they were, they were so I can't say it was totally, you know, a lost night for me because you get to see Ray Stevens and you get to see the girls and just the entrance alone of Bruno San Martino and Pedro Morales, you know, lit the crowd up and. You get those goosebumps when that when that happens, but uh, still, overall, a thumbs down. You could have gone home after the Bruno, right? After Bruno Pedro, could have gone home. Yeah, could have gone home early. Yeah. 
a little disappointing. Well, let's let's try to pick up the show. We have a question, John. I have a question for you. Um, this mm. is uh, from a fan. What is his name? Let me see. Uh, this is from uh, Jimmy in Wisconsin. If you want to send any email to us, we'd love getting your questions. Any questions to John at MetMemories.com. Uh, always welcome. And Jimmy asked, uh, Jimmy says, uh, love the show. John, do you still have any of your wrestling gear, especially your wrestling <laughs> boots that you wore in the last, it was a couple episodes we talked about this. It's coming up. Yeah. The match will be in a couple of years. But we talked about this a couple episodes ago uh, where you wrestled three Hall of Famers, Dusty Rhodes, Chief J. Strongbow, and Peter Maivia. He asked, uh, do you still own any of your wrestling gear, especially wrestling boots? And any chance could we put them up on eBay? Yeah, I mean, uh, I have to say no, ironically. I mean, when I sold my house and I found all my wrestling archives, I had so many boxes up in the attic of stuff and videotapes and boxes with just miscellaneous stuff. And uh, I did have the boots. I did have the singlet that I wore and the ring jacket. They were all in a box. And when I called 1-800-GOT-JUNK to come and help me clean out the stuff I didn't want anymore. I was just pointing to boxes. And, and when I unpacked, uh, when I moved into my new residence, uh, that box was carted away, mm. never to be seen again. John, 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 John. I would just imagine, because I, you know, as a young kid, I remember being in the streets of New York or Queens and walking with my uncle and we'd see a thing of garbage and he'd look through it. He'd always look to see what we can find because there's always treasures in there. Imagine the treasure for the guy who works for uh, 1-800-I-GOT-JUNK when he goes, oh, look at all this wrestling stuff. I love wrestling. All right. One man's trash is another man's treasure, Tim. And speaking of treasures, as I do the little segue, our show is a treasure and it's a treasure for us to do. And thank you to all our patrons for helping us help us keep the lights on for our treasure. And we're able to give you this show and other shows like it for free. Yes, I mean, uh, this is always a pleasure for me to do to cover these old days at Madison Square Garden. And, of course, we look forward to the next episode, which is kind of uh, an interesting one for me. And I don't want to spill too much of it, but uh, it's really the first show that I took some really quality photographs uh, with Ray Stevens and and the rest of the people that were on that show. An incredible night of wrestling that we're going to cover from November 27, 1972, headlined by Morales and Ray Stevens, and also the appearance of AWA world champion Vern Ganya, which was a big, big thing for me to see him in person for the first time. And we can see these pictures, if John can find them, on our Patreon, correct? <laughs> uh, I, I do have some digitized of Ray Stevens, uh, you know, a uh, nice bloody shot of him, which was really a classic one. And I also had a really very cool looking shot of Ganya in the ring with the belt, with that AWA belt, which for me was like, oh, my God, he's here with the belt on. Absolutely. And you can find these on patreon.com slash John Arizzi. We'll be talking more about that as next month comes up. But you can find all kinds, all our archives of this and all of it, all of your shows, right, John, are on patreon.com. Yeah, everything is up there. The entire archives of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight from April 9th, 1989, right through uh, the show I just uploaded. I just uploaded uh, show number 180 of the Pro Wrestling Spotlight, which was from November 21st, 1992, with special guest Captain Lou Albano. That was, I brought him in for a personal appearance uh, for a birthday party at Colonial Lanes in uh, Farmingdale on Long Island. One of my listeners uh, asked if he can get Captain Lou to 
go to a birthday party and uh, captain said yes he got paid and ironically uh the really cool thing about it which we'll be covering on the pro wrestling spotlight podcast is that i was back at wnyg at this time uh the show that was on after me was mickey b's jukebox review uh mickey was an oldies promoter and uh called himself uh the self-proclaimed king of rock and roll 42 inch waistline and all uh but he is the guy that on a flight back from puerto rico introduced captain lou albano to cindy lauper on the airplane mickey was sitting next to cindy who at that time was in a band called blue angel she had uh, just signed a solo deal with uh, epic records but she was with Blue Angel at the time. Who gets on the plane but Lou Albano and Mickey B's this big, he was, he passed away uh, last year, which was so sad. But uh, Mickey recognized Lou and was like, Lou Albano, come on over here, you know, and this is a beautiful young singer named Cindy Lauper. And they connected and and the rest, as Cindy says, was her story. But on, on this show uh, that we're going to be covering, uh, uh, I know I'm rambling, but it's kind of really fascinating stuff. Mickey, who preceded me, uh, tells the story of that introduction. And I had Captain Lou on the phone because he was at the bowling alley at the birthday party. And he had agreed to come to the studio as soon as the party was over and be on Mickey B's show to talk about that historic plane ride that might have led to WrestleMania. Wow, that's cool. And what year was this again? Uh, this show was 1992 and, uh, Mickey, Mickey used to go to Puerto Rico all the time because he'd perform there. He was a disc jockey. He'd do all the promote all these shows. Uh, so I believe that introduction was made sometime, uh, in 19, late 1983, early 84. And that's, as we all know, by the end of 84, early 85 is when, uh, all of this, unbelievable mainstream promotion with the rock and wrestling connection took place. And I think Mickey had a hand in it. Nice. Nice. Okay. I got one more question about captain Lou in 1992. How much would it cost captain Lou Obama to come to a birthday party? I think he got a thousand dollars. That's huge money back then. Yeah. That's a lot of money. That's so cool. If I had a thousand dollars, I'd, I probably wouldn't spend on Captain Lou. Maybe somebody else, but no. It was Nick Nick from Babylon was the guy's name, and he he brought Captain Lou in for his son at this birthday party, and uh, that it was kind of odd, but I was able to facilitate it and then lead to this great reunion between Mickey B and and the captain. Very cool, very cool. Uh, I love it, and you can hear this all on patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Also, once again, we want to thank Scott Teal and Crowbar Press for his great book, Wrestling at the Garden. Yes, uh, of course, that is the Bible that we use here for a lot of the research, and of course, the research and uh, most of these show notes are written by Richie Garcia, who uh, just does a fabulous job, as you do, Tim, as co-host and producer of the show. Uh, always a pleasure to be with you, and before we do uh, wrap it up for today, uh, don't forget, everybody, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight each and every week, wherever you get your favorite podcasts like this one, uh, Memories from Madison Square Garden, also where you get your favorite podcast. If you're listening on Apple, don't forget to rate it five stars. Leave it a review. And, of course, that always helps us when you're getting these five-star reviews. And every uh, review up there for this podcast, Tim, has been a five-star review, which is great. People love the show. Uh, and uh, finally, uh, for me, uh, I have that new venture that now we're going into show number four, and that is the Gibby show. I co-host a weekly baseball show with none other than John Gibbons, the uh, former two-time manager, 
10-year manager of the Toronto Blue Jays, who was involved in such great historic uh, situations with the Blue Jays in uh, in 2015. Uh, our last guest was Jose Batista. And Jose Batista, if uh, people don't know, or you might know, in the deciding game, in the elimination game in the 2015 uh, division series against the Texas Rangers. Uh, what a controversial seventh inning it was. Batista comes up and hits this monster home run and flips the bat in the air so high that created animosity uh, with the Rangers that led to a brawl in May of, of 2016. So Jose Batista, for the first time, reunites with John Gibbons on the podcast. And what a great discussion it was. It's out there right now for everybody. And we've also had uh, Josh Donaldson of the New York Yankees uh, in our first episode. And we uh, had the ace of the Toronto Blue Jays, Alec Manoa. And now uh, other guests that are coming up, uh, Marcus Stroman, uh, who also pitched for that 2015 team for the Blue Jays and was a former Met free agent and one of the most uh, polarizing guys out there. And uh, he's talking to Albert Pujols to bring him on. And so each and every week we have a, a, a big time A-lister guest. The podcast is now only in its fourth week. Uh, it debuted at number one uh, on baseball podcast in Canada. It debuted number one that first day, and it hasn't left the spot since. Uh, we're number uh, three uh, in uh, all sports podcast in Canada. Uh, we're in the top 50 in American baseball podcasts. And it also is uh, in the top 20 of all podcasts in Canada, regardless of the topic. So Gibby is uh, Gibby's doing really well. Uh, we have a great team assembled for the show. It's myself and, of course, John and great executive producer out of Canada who ran TSN for 30 years. Great creative guy um, uh, in Chris, uh, and we are very excited about it. So um, uh, if you have an opportunity, wherever you get your favorite podcast, look for The Gibby Show, uh, and we have some great segments. We have Answer Questions. Uh, we have the leadoff, which covers uh, the Toronto Blue Jays and the big stories in baseball, then gabbing with Gibby. I can't talk enough about it, how excited I am to be affiliated with it. And the numbers of the show are unlike anything I've ever seen. I mean, they totally not just blow away this show. And, and, and I'm, not, I'm not being disrespectful to this show because we have a, a following of people who love what we do. And, of course, the Pro Wrestling Spotlight also has a hardcore following. But when I look at my numbers, because I, I get to see the analytics on a daily basis, the Gibby show in only three weeks is about to surpass the entire year of downloads uh, from Pro Wrestling Spotlight and Matt Memories combined. Wow. It's crazy, but he's iconic in Canada. He's the everyman. He's uh, he, he's such a beloved figure in Canada. He doesn't have a lot of notoriety here in the United States. He really, his professional baseball career didn't really take off. It was an unfortunate, I mean, he was my roommate first. That's how I met him. He was my roommate when I worked for the Mets. And John was a first round draft pick uh, for the New York Mets in 1980 in the same draft that Daryl Strawberry was in. Strawberry was drafted number one. Billy Bean, who went on to create Moneyball, he was drafted number two uh, or in the top 10 rather. And then Gibby was drafted like in the first round at number 20. He was the guy that was going to be the Mets starting catcher for years. He went up through the minor league system and in 1984 made his debut right before the last week of spring training in 84. He got into a collision at home plate because he was a catcher and broke his cheekbone. And so that put him out for an injury. He came back 
couldn't hit for whatever reason. They brought him up only for like a month or so, put him back in the minor leagues. And then in 1985, they traded for Gary Carter uh, at the end of the 84 season. And once they signed Gary Carter, the, the, the writing was on the wall for John, although he was called up uh, in 86, the Mets championship year when Gary Carter hurt his finger and John came in and did really, really well, actually had a, uh, a batting average that season of 474, uh, which was pretty, de- pretty darn good. But John never really made it back to the majors, uh, had a little couple of appearances in 87 and the Mets uh, eventually traded him to the Phillies and then the Dodgers. He never really made it back to the show, but John stayed in baseball. Uh, he eventually came back to the Mets system and managed uh, for several years, winning the minor league championship with Tidewater for the New York Mets. And he was uh, he was a guy that, you know, was maybe going to uh, be uh, rising up in the system to manage the Mets. And then they uh, then they had brought in, uh, uh, I think they eventually hired, I believe, Willie Randolph to take over the helm. But John did well. I mean, obviously from the Toronto Blue Jays, he was a bench coach for the Kansas City Royals as well. And John right now, uh, it wouldn't surprise me that John would eventually get back in the dugout to manage another team. There's going to be a lot of openings this season. Texas Rangers have an opening. Tony La Russa just resigned from his uh, job with the uh, Chicago White Sox because of heart issues. Don Mattingly just resigned from the Florida Marlins. And uh, there may be four or five baseball openings uh, that John will probably be considered or at least interview for some of them. He would really like one more shot at getting in the dugout. And that, of course, would stop our podcast, which is, uh, you know, I want him to manage again, but I love the podcast. So we'll see where it goes. Come on. Anyway, you can, the, you can, the, you can the travel with him. You can travel with him. Bring a mic. Well, that's what I talked to. I said, John, if you are going to get a job with another team, I mean, put it in your contract that you're still going to do a podcast that will have to be whatever the team uh, is. And, you know, that'll be the focus, whether it's the Texas Rangers or Miami Marlins or whoever. But see if you could put that in the contract that you'll have a, uh, a weekly podcast uh, as a big league skipper. And he was like, yeah, Johnny, we'll see what we can do, man. You know, John is so easygoing. And it's just so much fun to work with a guy that you've known for 41 years, a 41 year friendship. And, uh, and to be able to to get with him each week on this show and talk baseball and to hear the inside stories, almost like pro wrestling spotlight, because for the first time you heard the inside story of what happened with that bat flip and that home run from Jose Batista. And the following year, the brawl where the two managers, Jeff Bannister and John Gibbons, almost got into a brawl themselves on the field. Uh, in that in that melee that took place and that fight was it was not a typical baseball fight where you know usually there's a lot of wrestling or pushing around Jose had slid hard into Odor the guy's name was uh, I forgot his first name but his last name was Odor of the Texas Rangers popped up and just got punched in the face like what a shot it was and there was just brawls everywhere. It was one of the ugliest baseball fights you'll ever want to see. You can see that on YouTube. I mean, I just watched it myself again, and it was just wild. But anyway, the Gibby Show, talking the inside of the business, getting the guys to really open up because John is part of that fraternity, and uh, they feel comfortable sharing stories that they may not normally share when you're just talking to the beat writers of baseball. So it's really an insider show in a lot of ways, too. Very cool, very cool. You can check that out wherever you find your favorite podcast. That's the Gibby Show, along with all of John's other podcasts. Uh, check them out. And, and, of course, we always say, you know, leave a review. What you want to do is listen first, 
leave a review. And when you do, it helps so much because it helps the algorithm. And when people say wrestling podcast, they'll find this one. When they say baseball podcast, they'll find that one. They find all the different things through algorithms. So if you leave us a review and it's five stars, and maybe you comment like, you know, uh, Tim snorts too much or you know, he's long-winded, or whatever, that's fine too. As long as you give us five stars, you can say whatever you want in the comments. And that'll help us in our algorithm reach more people and keep this show going. Agree, Tim. You, I couldn't have said it better myself, my friend. All right. Well, we got to get out of here. For John and Rizzi, I'm Richie Garcia. Well, I'm Richie Garcia. Look at that. I was so wrong. <laughs> I'm reading the notes. For John and Rizzi and Richie Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time. Look at that. Good show, Tim. Uh, I mean, Richie. <laughs>